Welcome, fun seekers, to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. Today we're going to feature more interviews by various podcast hosts on the new book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. Now let me say that this is not a repeat of the book. So if you have a copy of the book or you end up buying a copy of the book, this is all supplemental added content. And I think that you will find these interviews to be very interesting and or enlightening. Some of the questions that were thrown at me were fastballs. A few were curveballs. We get into some thorny issues, things that are rarely talked about in our time, at least in the way that I will be presenting it. So, without any further introduction, here are the interviews. I hope you enjoy them. If you haven't gotten a copy of the book yet, just go to 48laws.com and you will be able to listen to sample chapters, read sample chapters, listen to other interviews. In fact, episode 172, entitled The Laws of God's Power, contain the first interviews that I have done on the book. We have more interviews in the queue that deal with other questions that we plan to release in the future. God bless and enjoy. I am super excited about our guest because I would say in my life, he's been perhaps more influential than possibly anybody else in the church. Matt, who do we got? Hey, we've got Frank Viola. Yeah, Matt, tell, me, tell us a little bit about your experience with Frank. I think we'll get into it maybe a little more as we go through it. I've been part of Frank's uh, ministry mastermind group called the Insurgents Experience for the last year. It's about 10, 11 of us brothers with uh, with Frank, and um, he's just been pouring into us and our ministry, and I've got nothing but amazing things to say about that and the transformation that's come from working with Frank for the, the last year and having him mentor and pour into to my life, and so that's kind of where I found about him. Um, it's really through his book, Insurgents, is where I read that, and it completely changed my perspective of the gospel, and my perspective of the kingdom. So that's kind of uh, me bragging on you, Frank, and uh, I'm just so appreciative of you. And uh, this new book that you have, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, is another incredible um, book that is going to impact the church. I don't know what to say to that, man. I guess my first thought is the suction in this room is so great, the walls are caving in, <laughs> but that wouldn't be very nice. No, I no. appreciate it. The, no. the, uh, the comments are genuine, and it's, uh, it's humbling, really, to hear when you are doing the Lord's work, whether it's writing or speaking or you're working with a group of leaders, and they say things like, my life was transformed, etc., it's pretty hard to get my head around. It's a humbling thing. But then again, you know, the things that I share change my own life. So I guess in that way, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So this book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, um, is, uh, Brian and I both read it. I also read it in a day. I was, uh, wow. I, I just thought it was a great read. I, I started in the morning uh, at about 4 a.m. And I think I was done before lunch. And uh, I thought it was just a phenomenal read. I also did that with Jesus Manifesto. I um. Really, the thing I appreciate it the most is as I'm reading it, I think in every chapter, there was a point where I went, oh, that's me, you know, and, wow. and, it, and, and I did that in a way that uh, 
was very humbling, but it didn't come up. I didn't put the book down. You know what I mean? Like it, mm. it wasn't, uh, it wasn't written in a way that, that just kept throwing rocks or stones at me. You know, I, I could gracefully accept that. Yeah, I did that. I need to, I need to change that aspect and continue going. And I really appreciated that matter. In fact, I, I felt I've read, I believe all of your works and I felt like it was probably my favorite in terms of writing style of any, any of them so far. Brothers, I write the book that I want to read, but I can't find because it doesn't exist. And so I looked for a book like this and it did not exist. So then I took on the project, the Himalayan project of writing it myself. Now there are lots of books about God's supernatural miraculous power, you know, mostly written to charismatic audiences, but this is something very different. This covers God's power in all aspects of ministry, not just the miraculous. When I say spiritual power, I'm talking about the dynamic energy of the Holy Spirit. And what the power of God does is it alters situations to heal, to deliver, to awaken, to convert, to enlighten, and to transform human beings. If you're not serving in God's power, if I'm not serving in God's power, what are we drawing on? Well, we're drawing on the energy of the flesh. Mm -hmm. That which we are by birth, physical birth, is flesh. Uh, it doesn't have to be evil. It's just natural. That's fine for digging a hole. <laughs> it's fine for building a ship. But ministry requires the power of God in order for there to be everlasting fruit, eternal value, and real true transformation. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, so we've been going through a series on the church, and especially we're looking at church leadership right now and kind of the a lot of the positional view of authority and power um, really comes from the world. And you talk about that a lot in your book. So what do you see are maybe some common traps in ministry today that um, ministers fall into and how can they avoid them? There's a lot. And I'm exhibit A for some of this, uh, particularly people pleasing is huge and it's endemic to anyone who's in ministry is the impulse to please people. And I have a whole chapter. It's one of the laws. <laughs> Don't be a people pleaser. And what I do in that chapter is it's not just, you know, a statement that conveys the idea, this is not good. It digs deeper into why people are trying to please people in the first place. You know, what, what are the roots of people pleasing? So I give a, an exploration on that as well as a a prescription on how to overcome it. And at the end of the day, you can't please God and man. You cannot please the Lord and please humans. Those two are going to conflict at some point, oftentimes many points. So that would be one of the traps. Another trap that I see very often, and I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you've been around leaders, this is a big one. And it's something that's easy to fall into if God is using you but that's pride and arrogance that this is the first thing in your book that like just set me off it's it's never hurt god's people the first the first law law one and i'll i'll quote a paragraph in here it says it disheartens me to write this next sentence 
but Christian leaders who have been sufficiently broken, who respond gently when criticized, who react with grace when corrected, who feel no jealousy towards others whom God has gifted, who don't feel threatened by those who have God's favor, and who refuse to return evil for evil are rarer than diamonds. Out of all the pastors I know, Matt's the only one who fits that bill. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> put him on the pedestal right no. there. But it's unfortunate that you are absolutely right. The the pride and arrogance are are just, you know, men strong and and I, you know, I'm not a woman so I can't really speak for women, but boy, men in ministry this just seems to get them every single time. It is true that the more successful your ministry is, success as the world has it or as you may deem it, the more ripe and open a person is to pride and arrogance. And at the end of the day, it's confusing the paintbrush with the great artist who uses the paintbrush and losing touch with the fact that we're all marred, imperfect, flawed paintbrushes, but God in his mercy will use, he always uses flawed people, right? I mean, we're mm -hmm. all flawed. But when someone sees either God using them or because of their own talents and gifting, they are building something that's successful in the eyes of the world. It can go to a person's head. They lose sight of the fact that they're an imperfect paintbrush. They lose sight of the fact that God is the one who's you know doing it through them. There's this sense of almost self-righteousness. It has plagued many, many leaders, especially those who have larger congregations or larger ministries, or if they're a social media person, larger followings, more fans, etc. But it's a huge trap. And so I do address it in a few of the chapters in the book for sure. And by the way, I agree with your sentiment about Matt, your kind <laughs> words about Matt. I have been with Matt in the evening and he does glow in the dark if there's no yeah, light. <laughs> Well, thanks, Frank. Appreciate oh, that. You're welcome. You're welcome, bro. <laughs> high five. High five. High five. High five. Yeah. Um, so what are what are some other marks or characteristics of maybe pride or arrogance in somebody who is in ministry? You've listed a few. These would be the symptoms of pride and arrogance in a person who's in ministry. These are often ignored by the person who is you know, hosting the pride and arrogance in their hearts. Sometimes, well, I would say very often a leader who is inflicted with this is not in touch with it. But it's also true for those looking on. They don't really see this or they don't recognize it. Okay, so I'll give you a list. One of them is they're inaccessible. You can't reach them. And that's when somebody puts themselves in the position of a celebrity. You know, you and I can't reach Johnny Depp even though he's on social media, he's a celebrity. You and I can't reach Taylor Swift. She's a celebrity. Well, when a pastor or a kingdom leader is inaccessible right there, it shows you that there's a problem. Now, I realize that the larger your church and congregation, the more mail you're going to get. I get it. I get a lot of mail, but you could always have somebody help you, right? And here's the problem. A person who's inflicted with pride and arrogance is not only inaccessible to you know their congregation or if they're an author the people who read their books it goes beyond that they're even inaccessible to their peers and they will only allow a small handful of people 
to have access to them. That's a clear sign of pride and arrogance. Another one is they refuse to co-work with other leaders. They want to be solo acts, right? They want to be Michael Jackson's instead of <laughs> members of the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, they will not co-work. And part of that is because, A, they want to have all the control. You lose that complete independence when you work as a team. But the other one is the fear of being outshined. They don't want to be the recipient of you know, someone else taking the spotlight or sharing. It. So those are just some of the ones that come up. But yeah, it is. It's a real problem. And as we know, and we'll probably talk about this later, but pride and arrogance always have a consequence. It's a slow ticking bomb that sooner or later, and usually it's later, will go off. Yeah, for sure. So Frank, there's a there's a question that kind of comes as I read this whole work, and that's if I am a minister at the church and I'm trying to shepherd and care for others, um, most people realize it's it's the ones that are doing that if they're if they're truly servants that are getting beat up. What how how do you how do you help somebody take care of themselves? while they're taking care of serving, shepherding others? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's several parts of the book, as you know, that address that. You know, I have a whole piece on burnout, rust out and fade out, <laughs> uh, which all spring from, from this particular issue. I love the one on discouragement, too, that hits on this. Oh, well. well, that hits close to home for me. So yeah. when we get to that, we'll we'll talk about it. But, you know, one of the things that must be understood first are the roots of why people very often will fail to take care of themselves at the expense of caring for other people. One of them is, is this issue of people-pleasing that we talked about. That will always lead to burnout eventually. It's so crushing to find a, a person who's a consistent people-pleaser to see themselves crushed under the weight and very often people pleasers, they don't realize it, but the people they're pleasing will eventually become displeased with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? That grace only goes so far. And once you do something that is offensive in their eyes, they will turn, just like the people in Lystra, turn from worshiping Paul and Barnabas to stoning them. <laughs> right. That's one. The other one is, drawing on natural power the energy of the flesh rather than god's power because that will that will burn out very fast god's power is unlimited in the energy it provides human power is very limited and the other one is religious ambition is often involved when you know people are expending expending energy i'm talking about leaders now and and then they burn out because they're not taking care of their own soul it's religious ambition they want to climb that ladder they want to move into that elevated spot and so they're just burning both ends of the candle but you know it's the principle of the oxygen mask is perfect here yeah you know you get on a plane what's the first thing you hear hey if we're in a crisis if the plane goes down put your oxygen mask on first before you you know, help someone else. And at the end of the day, a leader is not going to be able to help anybody if they themselves are not caring for their own soul and spirit. And that does require intentionality. And it requires dealing with some of these things that I talked about, which are at the root 
very often of, of people burning out in ministry. Yeah, that's good. So the next thing that I want to kind of hit on, you you get to this a lot in the book. You hit on this in several chapters. And again, like I think so often one of the problems with these, you know, today's uber successful Christian CEO mentality is that pride and arrogance, as you said, take them over. But but that wasn't really the root. The root is that they've never experienced you know, what it means to really be broken in Jesus. And you bring that out over and over and over. And Matt and I really resound there with a back, uh, backward kingdom mindset. Can you share a little bit about it, kind of draw some of the connections of the book together? Well, brokenness is probably the main ingredient in a person's life to bring them to the place where they have a ministry that has eternal value. You know, there are ministries that can be viewed as valuable in the eyes of someone who's using the standards of the world, you know, church attendance, how big is your budget, how big is the building, you know, things like that, mm -hmm. which are the typical earmarks for success in the Christian world. But eternal value is something different that which is going to pass through this veil and go into eternity. What's going to last? When the fire falls, what's going to stand? To use the metaphor that Paul of Tarsus used in 1 Corinthians 3, every man's work is going to be tried. Mm -hmm. And so if a person is not broken and they're in the Lord's work, they are a dangerous human being. And the reason why God will bring whatever your theology is, whether you think he brings it or he allows it, okay? <laughs> we'll agree on one of those. Whether God brings it or he allows it, trial, tribulation, suffering, pain, heartache, all of these things are designed not to embitter us. That's the danger, is to become offended and embittered, but to break us. And brokenness is an essential qualification to be used in the house of God. Just like Paul says, it is required of all servants to be faithful. Well, I will also say, and I'll use Paul's words in other places, using different terminology, it is required of a servant of God to be broken. And the more broken a person is, the more God is going to use them, and it's going to be God and not them. You know, it is through death in us that life works in you. I'm quoting Paul in 2 Corinthians. And so there's a whole lot that's wrapped up in this. And part of the brokenness, believe it or not, comes from failure. And in this upside down kingdom, which you're talking about, failure is actually healthy. Failure in ministry because it produces some invaluable lessons like humility and God reliance, which is the opposite of self reliance. Yeah. Self reliance is poison in the work of God. God reliance is something totally different. So I have a very different view on failure than most people have. And, and by failure, I'm not, I mean, there's some failures that are so big you get thrown out of the race. I'm not talking about that. Paul of Tarsus went to Athens. He had some hopes that he was going to, you know, break ground there and raise up a kingdom community, but that didn't happen. He failed in Athens in terms of what he was wanting to do. He only had a handful of converts. He was mocked off the stage, so to speak, and there was no uh, believing community, no kingdom community, no ecclesia in Athens. 
And when he went to Corinth right afterwards, he was in fear and trembling. It broke him. And he was able to do some amazing things in Corinth as a result. This is very different than the uh, message that we typically get with, you know, the churches of today. And I'm not just talking mega churches, but even the smaller churches, you kind of have a success at all cost culture. Yeah. I'll double click on that. <laughs> yeah. So you have a chapter on, um, and we talked about this a little bit already in the episode is about celebrity and ministry. And um, so Ryan did mention mega church and i know you've talked quite a bit about church structure and stuff in some of your books so i don't know if you um are willing to maybe share some of your thoughts on that right now and maybe stuff you've experienced and i don't know maybe a better way okay well i have to be careful here because i do have friends who are mega church pastors and you know they're serving the lord they're reaching people there's one in particular who I regard as a friend. I just heard from him the other day. He is the pastor or was the pastor of one of the largest mega churches, just retired recently. He managed to survive it. Now, I'm going to put it that way because it'll make sense after I say what I'm going to say. Many, many, many mega church pastors have not survived mm -hmm. that experience. Gosh, just this year, 2022, and add 2021 at least five really, really well-known megachurch pastors crashed and burned. Mm -hmm. And it's sad. I have a very, very good friend who brought me in some years ago to meet with a megachurch pastor, got to know him, became friends with him, his team. I'm still good friends with his team to this day, but he crashed and burned earlier this year. And I've had conversations with people who are on the inside, you know, inner circle, co-workers with some of the mega church pastors. And so a lot of my insights have come from conversations with them mixed with observation. And so I'll share a few of them with you. The first one is no human being is wired to handle the kind of power and influence that comes from a typical mega church. We're just not wired for it. And when you give that kind of power and influence to somebody, <laughs> a human being, a mere mortal, I don't care if they're Christian or not, it's going to destroy them at some level with very few exceptions, okay? I put it this way once when I was talking to one of these people. I said the megachurch structure is designed to destroy the person at the top. <laughs> but it's a slow path to destruction because it breeds a sense of entitlement. And what ends up happening is guys who, you know, were denying themselves, following the Lord with, with a great zeal, very slowly and subtly begin to adopt this sense of entitlement. And they begin to live like celebrities. They have servants who, you know, wait on them hand and foot. They spend obscene amounts of money on material things, whether it's homes, cars, furniture. There's this sense of entitlement. And it's a high honor culture that is developed in this kind of environment that breeds, it's actually the breeding ground for codependency. Yeah. And so all of the people on the team who are around the megachurch pastor become codependent. And they don't even realize it until 
and this typically happens, the dominoes start falling, you have a crash and a burn. And then the people who are around that person, they end up realizing, looking back now, because they didn't realize it when it was taking place, looking back now that they were codependent. And some of them have to get counseling to get some help. So I'm not condemning anybody here. I'm not condemning megachurch pastors. I'm not saying that God can't use the system. He uses megachurches all the time. I'm saying that that system is unnatural and that that structure is basically destructive to the person who's at the top of it. I mean, it's a machine. And what ends up happening is you you have to feed the machine for it to keep going. And by the way, those are words taken right out of the right-hand man of one of the most well-known megachurch pastors in the country. You have to keep building the machine. And one of the things that he said to me, and this has been repeated by many who are on the inside, is that we were there in the beginning to build people. But eventually, instead of building people, we used people to build the structure. Do you have anything else that you want to comment about that? I mean, we've seen so much of megachurch like failings. Uh... You just go through it and you count all the all the pastors. And this has been going on for a long time. Yeah. How is how is that related? What are your thoughts on it? We're talking about megachurch pastors. And very often when there is a quote unquote fall, right, um, when they crash and burn, sometimes it's relational, right? It's inappropriate relationships, but often it's financial. The result is that they are forced out of their position. Sometimes some of these guys turn away from God altogether. And there's a really interesting question that that lies at the bottom of this. I remember watching an interview with Johnny Depp, and he was saying that one of the things he learned is that money does not corrupt people. Money reveals corruption that's already there. Hmm. And I don't know if this kind of power that is given to leaders in very, very large congregations. I don't know if it corrupts them where they weren't corrupt before, or if it just exposes a corruption or seeds of corruption that were already there. I don't know the answer to that. But either way, no human being, I'll say it again, is designed for that kind of power. And on to your question about leaders who who fall in some way, whether it's relational or it's uh, financial or it's abusiveness or whatever. I only have three things to say. One, the boomerang effect. Two, the housetop expose. And three, the danger of the empty house. And I'll, I'll expand each one. The boomerang effect. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And Paul made the statement in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Hmm. In Romans 14, 4, he said, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Now, if you were living in the 1980s, you got a front row seat to the boomerang effect. I don't know if you brothers are aware of this, but during the 1980s, a televangelist fell relationally and financially, and it was all over the news and the newspapers. This is before the internet. We'll just call him Joe. I don't want to repeat his name. Well, while that was going on, the greatest televangelist at the time, the one who had the most 
impact, the most viewers, the most money. He got on national television and excoriated Joe on live TV. He said he was a cancer to the body of Christ who needed to be excised. That's a direct quote. I remember reading a book by Watchman Nee where he said he has never seen a case where a person who looked down their noses at another Christian in self-righteous judgment who didn't fall into the same thing or worse later on. And that guy who got on national television, the greatest televangelist of the time, and perhaps even in history, when he excoriated Joe for Joe's fall, it was not long <laughs> until we found out that this televangelist was doing the same things and he crashed and burned and he's never recovered, yeah. even to this day. So that's the boomerang effect. My point is, I'm not going to comment on any of those things. Yeah. Because all of us are open game for any mistake, no matter how small or big. And the second one is the housetop expose. The housetop expose, that's a reference to the Lord's words about certain things being proclaimed from the housetops, right? That happened in secret. This comes from Ray Stedman, who is an author who wrote some really fine books. But he was once asked, you know, how do you keep yourself from yielding to temptation? And he said, he was an older man at the time. He said, well, I wish I could tell you that because I have this gray head, temptations don't come my way, or I'm so strong in the Holy Spirit that I just, you know, blow smoke and it's gone. He said, that's not the truth. He said, the thing that keeps me from yielding to temptation is the fact that it's going to be all over the news <laughs> and I don't want to be shamed. It's the housetop expose. And I thought that was beautiful. Some people may say, well, that's not spiritual. Well, guess what? If that's going to keep that brother, and it did, from you know making a boneheaded mistake that's going to destroy his life, I don't have a problem with that. And then the danger of the empty room or the empty house, you're the most vulnerable to temptation after God has used you in power. Most every person who you've mentioned or other people throughout the pages of history, you know, who have made mistakes that have destroyed them, every one of them was successful. In the eyes of the world, successful. I don't know about in, in the eyes of the kingdom. Only God knows that. But those are the only three things I would remark on. The boomerang effect, the housetop expose, and the danger of the empty house. That was good. Thanks, Frank. Um, so we'll wrap it up with a few more questions here with you as we come to a close. So uh, personally, which law has been particularly challenging maybe for you to follow in your own life? Law number eight, discouragement, overcome discouragement. That's a big one. I think naturally my wiring, you know, when I came out of the womb, <laughs> I was predisposed and, and still am predisposed to see the glass as being half empty or having a problem with the liquid in the glass and feeling it's not clear enough. And so I tend to look at the negatives. That's my default rather than the positives. And what I've learned about discouragement, a couple things. One, it's in the bloodstream of of ministry. 
you know, if you're ministering in any capacity, you're serving the Lord in any capacity, discouragement is going to come right along with it. You can't get away from it. It's there, period. Even if God is using you in tremendous ways, you're going to be discouraged. Paul Tarsus was discouraged. He went beyond discouragement. He despaired of life in Ephesus. You know, eventually he bounced back. But that's that's one of the things I learned about it. The other thing I learned about it is you'll never get rid of it, but you can overcome it in the moment. Hence, the law is overcome discouragement. But it's going to come right back, so you, you have to keep overcoming it. Yeah. What you have to learn to do is dance with it. And so recognizing that discouragement is your partner, it's going to come and go, but you can dance with it. And if you can dance with it in the moments where it comes and tries to inflict you and tries to actually press you into something more severe like depression or despair, you can actually dip your partner <laughs> discouragement and be on top of it. And I give a prescription of how I do that in my own personal life in the book on that chapter. That's good. People appreciate the humor. There's a lot of humor peppered in it. Mm -hmm. And they appreciate the stories and they appreciate the practical handles because I'm not just trying to give information. I'm trying to create formation. And the way you form people is you give them practical assignments. You give them something practical that they can handle and apply. Without that, then it's just a lot of ideas. Yeah, it's great. Um, throughout the insurgents experience that I was part of with you, I know you've gone over a few of these chapters and done some of the exercises even with uh, myself and the other brothers in that. And I found them extremely impactful, especially the the handles that you gave at some of the ends of those chapters you went over with, with us. So I agree. Um, all those comments you said, things that I've popped in my mind also as I was I was reading it also. By the way, when I use the word law, I'm not talking about a rule. I'm talking mm. about principles, like the law of gravity, right? Yeah, I love uh, that. Unchanging, enduring principles. So, you know, writing a book is a lot like writing songs for an album and then recording it. I have a certain style. I use a lot of humor in my, mm. <laughs> in my mm -hmm. writing. I mm -hmm. write the chapters really short. So these are not okay. long ballads. These are, are short, top consumable. 40, yeah. yeah, consumable, digestible. And then I tell stories to illustrate the point. But it, just like any album, it's going to hit people in a different way. You know, there's some people who absolutely love the late Michael Jackson. They think he's mm. the greatest thing since cream spinach. And then there are others who hate his music. They like the Rolling Stones or Adele yeah. or Taylor Swift yeah. or Led Zeppelin. And so my books... They have a certain style, a certain rhythm. Mm -hmm. But once you start reading it, you'll pick it up pretty quickly. And hopefully yeah. people will like the style. So far, the response has been overwhelming, both from laymen, quote unquote. I don't like that term, but right. you know what I mean. They're not right. clergy. Mm -hmm. From people who are pastors and elders and leaders and teachers all across the gamut. And as I say in the book, and I'm double clicking on something you said in the opening, that all Christians are in ministry. There's a statement I make in the book, and that is, if you're in Christ, your whole life is a mission trip. Mm. Very good. Very good. Just to give our listeners a little bit of, I've, I know a little bit more about you than perhaps some of them who hadn't read as many as your, your books and listened to your podcasts. Have you ever been in the institutional ministry of showing up, you know, seven days a week as a pastor uh, or a worship leader, Sunday school teacher, any of that in any form? 
Yes to the Sunday school teacher. I okay. was not employed, but I was enlisted to teach yeah. a Sunday school class to young adults and then also okay. college and career when I was young. I've never been an institutional church pastor. However, I have been in shepherding roles in yeah. smaller churches, and I've also worked with multiple churches in sort of a, a church planting role, and I've also worked with and trained many, many pastors of all different denominations. And I know I recently saw you, uh, you post on Facebook that you'd also just done like a, uh, I don't know if it was a conference or something with specifically pastors, which I, I think was yes. awesome, aw just absolutely awesome. Just giving them that training and that, that mentorship and guidance. Cause I mean, pastors have a hard job. They really do. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I know a lot of pastors myself and it's, uh, I, I've never done it. Obviously I'm very young. I've never even, my dad's never done it. It doesn't run in our family, but I know I've seen the toll that it can take oh, yeah. on, on a, on a man. And it's just a lot of responsibility, a lot of weight. So I wanted to get your perspective there uh, kind of um, before we go any further, but a lot of the people who follow and consume your work are believers, sincere believers in their twenties, thirties, and forties. What's one law of spiritual power that you feel has particular significance for young individuals in their early twenties who are, you know, looking to get married, looking to start a family, looking to basically lay the foundation of their life that God has kind of called them to. Uh, what's one law that you believe has particular significance for them? Well, I'll give you two. The first okay. one is law 29, do not compromise. There mm -hmm. is going to be, and there is, but there will be much more so as you live your life, incredible, tremendous pressure to compromise, compromise your values, compromise your convictions. It's a slippery slope because once you start to say yes to compromise, it never ends and it mm. becomes harder and harder to say no to it. And I've seen lots of Christians, gifted Christians, shipwreck their lives and their faith because they said yes to those little compromises and uh, at the end of the day, they were on a railroad track to destruction. So that's the yeah. first one, never okay. compromise. It's a whole chapter on that, law number right. 29. Law number 32, stay in school. Now, that does not mean physically attending a school. It doesn't mean continuing education in the formal yeah. sense, but it means continue to learn, continue mm. to listen to podcasts, read books, take yeah. courses, all right? And I have an episode on the Christ is All podcast that I recommend everybody listening to this to go and listen to. It's 117, number 117. The episode's called Five Reasons Why You Should Have a Mentor, all right? Ah, you can also it. find it on my blog, frankviola.org, but... It is huge that you find a mentor in your life because it will cut the learning curve. It will collapse time, okay, for you. Mm. You will be able to get ahead in all areas of your life if you find the right mentor, that is, so good. in all areas of your life that really would take many, many years to discover and not only years, but a lot of failure, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. You could short circuit the whole mm. process by getting a mentor. Just find the right mentor. I talk about this in the episode, Five Reasons Why You Should Have a Mentor on the Christ Is All podcast. So good. So good. Guys, I'm, I will uh, really, really encourage you here. Just take a moment to encourage you. That is going to be something you want to listen to. Um as you all know, we talk about the mentorship all the time and how, how critical that is, which is why I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up on the show, Frank. I know you don't know that we talk about that a lot, but that's something we really drive home here is the importance of mentorship for young people and um, getting getting somebody to help you aim and help you avoid the pitfalls and help you know what to do and give you guidance beyond your years. So really, really thank you for that piece of advice there. And 
moving on here, what's one major focus or one of the major focuses on this show is the importance of healthy community. And I know you've written so many books. You said 20. I mean, several of those have the actual subject of maintaining healthy Christian community and the importance of that. What are there any spiritual laws in, in your book that actually um, focus on the importance of community and uh, kind of teach you, give you practical ways of how to like build that up in your life? Well, law number 19 would, would fit that probably better than, than the others. Okay. And law 19 is develop an instinct for the cross. Now, let me explain mm. what I mean by the cross. By the cross, I mean the dying to self aspect of the cross, where we take up our crosses to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus talked about laying your life down. He talked mm -hmm. about losing your life. He talked mm -hmm. about submitting to the cross. Paul said, I die daily. All right. So the cross is that principle where you deny yourself to please the Lord, to follow the Lord. You deny your selfish nature. You deny your flesh. You lay your life down. You lose. Now, Christian community, Seth, will not work without the cross. There has mm. to be people who are dying to themselves, dying to their opinions, even if they may be right. Okay. So true. Dying to themselves, Christian community will not work without the cross. It's in community that we actually have the opportunities to die to ourselves. Christian community is very, very difficult. Develop an instinct for the cross. I sketch it out in detail in Law 19. And okay. that, that would be one of the major ones. Yeah. Perfect. Love that. In your book, Discipleship in Crisis, that's another book that Frank's written for those of you who are wondering. He discusses how many discipleship programs and ventures of the modern scene are failing to produce results, but continue to be practiced without change. Kind of that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. What's one practice, Frank, or principle that you would leave listeners uh, with on reforming the discipleship efforts that we have today, both in the institutional church and outside of it, like through the through the minister, the um, masterminds and conferences that you do, the discipleship efforts? What's one thing you would leave with them mm -hmm. on reforming and improving that? Absolutely. Well, this is easy for me to answer because it burns in my heart. And just so your listeners know, they can get the book Discipleship in Crisis completely free yeah. just by subscribing to my blog, frankviola.org. They'll get a free copy of that, which actually expands what I'm about to say. It also comes with a book that's free too. It's called Rethinking the Will of God, and it's helped lots and lots of young believers. By young, I mean age-wise, in their 20s and uh, so forth, who agonize over God's will. Like, what is God's will mm. for my life? I mean, pure yeah. agony. And this really has helped lots of those believers find their way with clarity. Anyway, so the missing ingredient to your question is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The key phrase in that passage is Christ lives in me. Jesus said in John 6, as the Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he, so she who feeds on me shall live by me. The heart of discipleship, Seth, and this is the missing ingredient, this is what's been neglected, mm -hmm. is the way we follow Jesus Christ today is by following the indwelling spirit 
who indwells us. Christ lives in us by the Spirit. And we do not become disciples by trying to externally imitate him. You know, reading the Bible, what well, Jesus did this, so now I'm going to try to do that. No, mm. it's by internally incarnating him. That's how we imitate him. We have the same life inside of our spirits yeah. that was in Jesus Christ. It's himself in the spirit living in us. And Jesus lived by the Father's life. Now we have been given the life of Christ through the spirit. And so now discipleship is simply the act of learning how to live by the indwelling life of Christ. And I talk about that in the book, Discipleship in Crisis. I also talk some about it in 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. I actually have a whole course on it that gives the practicals on how do I live by Christ? Christ lives in me. Mm. That's wonderful. But how do I live by his life, not by my own life? So good. So good. Uh, my mind was actually just exploding with several different things as you were talking there. Um, you mentioned the the being led by the spirit as the main thing that we're missing in discipleship. Totally get, I, I just, I, th I think that's so true. A lot of days, Frank, what do you think of, have you ever heard the solo scriptura argument where it's like, uh, by scripture alone, we must, we must live nothing else because a lot of people I've heard the argument. Now I don't believe this, but I've heard the argument that a lot of people think that when you begin looking, um, unless if you lift your eyes from the pages of scripture, you will go off into error. And I know that even scripture talks about, you know, God's law being written on our hearts now. And, um, you know, even like the Pharisees search the scriptures, uh, and miss Jesus entirely when he came to earth. So it's not like scripture fixes everything. But my point is a lot of people say that they, um, when you lift your eyes from scripture, you get off into error. What would you say to them there? The Holy Spirit who lives in us does not replace the Bible. Yeah. And the Bible does not replace the Spirit. They work yeah. together. So in yeah. other words, if I'm living by the Holy Spirit, guess what? The Spirit is going to lead me always, always, without exception, to do that which the Scripture teaches. The Holy Spirit's never going to contradict himself. Yeah. But the point I'm making is that this Holy Spirit that inspired Scripture now lives in you if you're a true yeah. believer, right? Yeah. And so he good. also has a voice, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice yeah. and they Very follow good. me. Yeah. And so, you know, there are things that the scripture is going to point toward, but the Holy Spirit gives us the power and the energy to fulfill it and the specifics, the specifics. Mm. You know, if we talk about a job, getting a job, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell you which job to take. Right. Uh, entering into uh, uh, an opportunity that's been given to you, that yeah. the Holy Spirit leads us into those things, ministering to somebody, right? Getting the right words to say to them, digging out or kind of uncovering the root problem as you're trying to minister to them. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And the mm -hmm. scriptures themselves, just read John 14, 15, and 16. It's all about Jesus entering into us, living in us by the Spirit. But the point is, to the Sola Scriptura, I believe that you know, sola scriptura in the sense that the reformers did, that there's no extra biblical revelation, right. but the Holy Spirit will always lead and guide us into what the scripture teaches. He will never contradict it, but it will be expanded and revealed further to really understand the scripture. We yeah. need the Holy Spirit. Okay. I love that. Absolutely on point there. Um, a lot of, I know, cause I know that's a big challenge among, uh, even amongst my friend circles, there's some, there's some debate on that, the whole um, what is, what are we actually, 
I tend to fall on the side of, I think Christians, a lot of Christians in the Bible Belt area that I'm from today, really, I feel like have a better relationship with scripture than they do with the actual person, the actual Trinity of Jesus, right? Father, Son, Spirit. I feel like they're better uh, acquainted with the Bible. They love the Bible even more um, than they love, than they love Christ, which bothers me deeply. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize the air, the, the danger of beginning to take advice, uh, beginning to think other things are what we should look to. If Jesus was on the earth right now in the flesh, okay, he would say, yeah. follow me, right? And yeah, we would follow right. him. We would see him. Mm-hmm. If he takes a left, we take a left. If he takes a right, we take a right. That's what a disciple is. Yeah. Well, now that Jesus is ascended, he has sent forth his spirit. The scriptures testify of Jesus Christ. They testify of the spirit. And now Paul says in Romans 8, they who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. They're the disciples Mm. of God. See, so it's no different to follow Jesus today than it was in the first century, except what's shifted is now he lives in us. Mm. And the scriptures will definitely lead us into how to recognize his voice. That's where the scriptures help us. Like, okay, I have this impression, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. He's telling me to do this terrible thing. Well, no, that's not the Holy Spirit (laughs) because it contradicts the Bible. Hey guys, this is a postscript just before you head out and we part ways. I've created a bundle of free resources. This would include my other podcasts, the YouTube channel, several free eBooks, free seminars, and other free resources. And you can find all of that at frankviola.com. And if you go to frankviola.com, you will see in the top menu a link that says free stuff. You just click on that and you will be taken to the free resources page. Also, a number of you have asked if you could donate to help defray the costs of the podcasts and also to express appreciation for the value that you've been receiving. You're under no obligation to donate. I don't ask for donations, but should you have it on your heart to do so, you can go to frankviola.us. That's frankviola.us. And that will take you to a donate page. There's three different options you can use to donate, all of them simple. Thank you very much, and God bless.